This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode uh, is one of this country's foremost experts on cyber security. Uh, WA born and bred, uh, born in Fremantle, uh, spent some time uh, growing up in uh, country WA, uh, the son of a mostly spud farmer. He's been a school teacher uh, and has uh, gone on to really put uh, Edith Cowan University and Perth uh, on the global map uh, as one of the leaders in uh, cyber security strategy. So it's with great pleasure I say hello and welcome to Professor Craig Valley. Hello, Tim. How are you going? Yeah, good, thanks. How's your cyber security going on this day? Uh, it varies. Constant challenge. A, yeah, constant <laughs> challenge. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you tell me, I mean, there's so much to get through and I want to talk, you know, a lot about what you're doing now, but uh, I'm curious to know when you first sat down in front of a computer and decided that you loved it. Um, that would have been uh, 1982 when I was at um, high school. We had, they bought in a um, Commodore 64 back then yep. in year 12. Remember and, the Commodore 64? Yeah, and we got yep. access to it and there was this thing called programming and I sort of liked the logic and how things um, worked as in there was you know there was always a right answer one yeah. or zero um, and, <laughs> and so yeah I, I I was a math science background so yeah sort of uh, became very attracted to it and further sort of I went for one year at Curtin and did chemical engineering I passed mm. chemistry I passed some engineering units I failed quite a few <laughs> uh, but the one I excelled in was the two computing units yeah so that was a natural progression for me and uh, then went on to um, as it was then wacky Edith Cowan and started a dip teach and the major was in industrial arts um, because of the farming background I suppose yeah and the only other reason it was because there was no major then in computing in 1984. So Is that right? Yeah. So Things have changed just, a little yeah. bit since then, haven't they? It was just the cusp of the microchips yeah. and the personal PC and all yeah. that sort of stuff, yeah. But, I mean, I remember getting a Commodore 64 and all I cared about was what game am I going to get it to run? Yeah. You were a little bit different because you wanted to know how the thing worked. Yeah. As, as Where my, does that come from? I, as my mother would say, I've always been different. Um so uh, I was the sort of kid that would get a Tonka toy and be one that would be pulling it apart to see how it goes. Yeah. Mum, you know, used to often just face palm all the time. There was Craig pulling apart his Christmas toy. <laughs> Everyone else happily playing with theirs, and then I'd try mm. and put it back together. But I always, um, I, I suppose also too, drew inspiration back then from um, Julie Sumner Miller. Why is it mm. so? Um, that that stuff used to fascinate me and science fascinated me. Mm. And so I wanted to get to the root of why something works or why something behaves in a particular manner and can you modify the behaviour. Mm. 
Do you have a bit of a love-hate relationship with computers and technology now? Um, oh, look, I I have. It, I appreciate the hardware and software and the wetware, as I call it, the people that drive them. They're the ones I have the love-hate <laughs> yeah, relationship. Right. That, you know, computers, as I say, most computer systems, um, you know, two out of three elements will do exactly as they're told every time. The humans uh, will find creative ways to get around it, subvert it, mm. break it, use it for evil purposes as well, sadly, mm. uh, just as well as good. And um, I suppose in terms of the way I view the technology and the, the growth of technologies, and it will not abate. Um, you know, a lot of people think it will, but it won't. Um, that the, the use in good is, you know, 99.9% of the the curve and the 0.1%, you know, there's some pretty horrible outcomes. But the mm. problem is these days that people don't appreciate is that that outcome is global. It's not localised here, mm. you know, local neighbourhood or whatever. Mm. Yeah, the, the connectivity has uh, given rise to certain challenges that you have made your mission to uh, overcome or at least protect us yeah. from. And try, yeah, and try and protect us. I mean, I think that the other one is that people... I mean, I struggle on a daily basis to deal with some of the numbers yeah. on the internet. Yeah. Internet. I mean, 3.5 billion people use the internet every day. Yeah. And even if you apply the the old disinfectant ads on TV, kills 99.9% of germs, you've still got 35 million people or thereabouts um, plus that want to do you harm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about the internet is the standard sort of way we interact with the environment and, and the physics of the actual space um, is just nothing in our reference for all the other stuff we do in land, sea, air, and space. I mm. mean, you know, a nanosecond um, is one, you know, 10 to the minus nine, you know, a millisecond we think is really quick and that's a million times faster and that's current speeds and it won't be long. You know, I started on a computer, <laughs> on a computer, I remember buying my first floppy disk for the computing at, um, at uh, Curtin. It was a, 10-inch floppy, um, about the size of a small pizza box mm. these days, um, and it held a whopping 860 kilobytes of memory. It cost <laughs> me back then um, uh, around about, I think it was 12 or $13, and I used yeah. to get $35 a week for tertiary education allowance, and that was the maximum you would get back yeah. then. So, you know, a third of my income in one week went into buying one floppy disk. Yeah. We were told to get two. There was no way I was buying two. So we used to, even back then, share and swap floppy disks between us as yeah. we were storing stuff. But yeah. now you go out and you can't buy anything that's 160 kilobytes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, I saw USB sticks the other day in one of the retailers. I think it was $12 for, $12 for 32 gigabytes. It's, mm. just, it's ridiculous, the explosion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's only really... Uh, in about 35 odd years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so much attention on cybersecurity at the moment um, and so much uh, government attention uh, on it as well. Um, how are we going here in Australia generally? Well, uh, as a, I suppose as a, you know, as a world leader in the field and protecting our own yeah, interests. I, I think we're waking up slowly um, to the risk and I don't think um, we have done a, a good job. And when I say we... I'm talking about academics and, and the government at explaining the risk to um, the general populace of it. Um, but we're improving. I mean, the current recent changes are great. They're a step in the right direction, you know, an extra 500 people 
it should be an extra 5,000 as a starter. I mean, I think um, we're still very underdone on um, the actual addressing the threat with appropriate levels of funding. Mm. Um, you know, think of how much we spend in land, sea, air and space defence. And we're not putting anywhere near the amount of dollars into um, yeah. cyber. And But cyber can affect now because of the automation and all those other platforms that we rely on. Um, you know, it, it's it's scary, um, the impacts. And also, too, one of the other things that's not well understood about technologies is a lot of people use Intel PCs, right? Um, or they'll use a a particular brand of phone with a particular processor and it's millions of people that are affected if a particular what we call exploit or vulnerability is found. Once that um, is found and it can be deployed, it's not to the neighbourhood. It's not, you know, everyone's all of a sudden nicking all the Holdens in the neighbourhood. Um, it's every Holden on the planet um, is being stolen or mm. has the ability to be stolen. And the other thing that's not in the Australian psyche or reference, and particularly Western Australia, is the fact that people from the internet are three to four seconds from doing you harm from any point on the internet. They can mm. connect to you, download some malicious code or malware, viruses, worms, whatever you want to call it. Um, there's so many names. And I think that's the other thing is too, that is often- The language is understood. Lang yeah. Language isn't, we haven't quite got there in the lingo, Franco, you know, mm. the, the common language for everyone to understand, but mm. I think we're getting there, we're improving. Yeah. And and that's what we've got to continually do is keep, you know, eye on the ball, um, improve, realize that, um, you know, the attack surface for us is not only uh, part, part of the problem I struggle with and I cannot constantly fight is the overuse of the word hacker. As soon as you say hacker, there's some romantic notion of a 14 to 23-year-old. That's what I have in my head, yeah. yeah. Mr. Robot yeah, type Mr. character. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not factual. The problem is that um, it's across all strata and, in fact, some of those, some of those people are still trying to uh, learn what others of us, of us have forgotten um, because of, you know, experience. And, I mean, that's the thing. These teams of cyber criminals and nation-state actors are highly advanced. Um, they are highly educated, and it's a business for them. Mm. And, and we need to realise that. This is not opportunistic like it was in the late 80s, early 90s. This is highly organised things now that are coming mm. after the nation-state's goodies and also less and less, funnily enough, um, financial stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, so they're, they're disruptive. That's yeah. their primary motivation. Yeah, they're disruptive yeah. and sometimes deleterious in terms of they can actually destroy something from afar mm. quite easily. And I think in one of the recent articles I was quoted, you know, dropping a 10-ton bomb on a power plant to disable it these days lacks a certain finesse. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you can use cyber means for a lot of this to disable national critical infrastructure. Mm. And um, that's, you know... Part of the other problem is a lot of our systems now that we rely on every day without even thinking about it. I mean, you know, something as simple as going to the toilet in the morning. You know, you're doing your morning ablutions. You know, how does the water get there? Oh, it's pumped there. What's it pumped there by? Oh, it's controlled by a computer and it gets there. Um, you flush. Where does it go? Well, it's controlled by pumps till it goes to its treatment state station. The treatment station has all these things. It's got all of these things in it. Where do you get the toilet paper? That's been processed by at least three or four information systems to get to sit on top of your mm. toilet bowl. You know, <laughs> and, and that's just a simple human daily function. And the IT IT systems and everything that we rely on 
uh, critical infrastructure systems are so now catastrophically dependent on secure operation that sooner or later we're going to pull out one of those sticks um, and things are going to go horribly wrong. Mm. Um, you know, human body can last three days without water. Imagine water being cut off or being interrupted in a West Australian summer, mm. um, you know, and the other is uh, interrupting transportation, interrupting supply, um, yeah. and all, all of those um, disrupt, disruption or even just, you know, disruption or degradation, let alone destruction, which can actually occur as well. Mm. Because a lot of the stuff in the infrastructure is what we call legacy. It is as old as, well, it's older than some undergraduates we teach. You know? So <laughs> it's 30 to 40 years old. We rely on it for our economic wealth. Yeah. You know, yeah. In the mining sector, in the manufacturing sector and so on. And um, it's an easy target for an adversary, Yeah, you know, depending on their goals. I, I'm starting to wonder how you managed to put your head down on the pillow and get some sleep at night without freaking out. Well, as you, um, as you, Craig, can, as you can see, I'm follically, <laughs> follically challenged. And there's photos of me at 23 with a very long curly mullet. So there you go. Back in the Commodore 64 days or, or shortly after. Yeah. We need to take a break, Craig, but yeah, uh, no we might get back into uh, some more of your early years uh, right after uh, we take a break. This is Inspiring Stories. Professor Craig Valley is our special guest. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Professor Craig Valley uh, from Edith Cowan University and aware of many other hats as well, which we'll, uh, we'll get into in as much detail as we can uh, over the next half hour or so. He's our special guest in this episode. Um, let's go back to your early years. I mentioned you were born in Frio, that you spent some time... Uh, in country WA uh, on a farm, um, what was what was life like uh, as a youngster for you? Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing is your family just I'm making assumptions here, mm. but valley ending in a vowel. I'm assuming mm. it has perhaps Italian origins. Yep, you might have been post-war migrants. Have I got the story about? Um, right? Yeah, one half of the family. Yeah, but yeah, double consonant and a vowel on the end. Yeah, the indicates yeah. Um, <laughs> that. Um, my nonno, uh, my grandfather, came out here actually after the um, Abyssinian War in '23. Right. He worked in Sons Aguilia, uh with a whole pile of um, Voltolini, um, northern Italians, um, back then. My nonna came out in um, 1930, the year of 1939. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so. Uh, the, the irony was when I was getting a little bit of bullying when I was at school for being a wog, uh, as it was back in the 70s, um, some of the kids who were um, bullying me actually had less time on West Australian soil, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so on that side of the family and then on the other side is um, my mother's maternal name's Dunning, so um, that's Scottish. Right. So um, one of my funny things was when I went to Hadrian's Wall, I was a bit like, off the wog boy, I didn't know whether to cut my own throat or, or, or you know, strip off and paint myself blue and scream. But um, run you know, around in a kilt yeah. for a while. So yeah, and on the the uh, Italian side of the family, most are market gardeners, farmers, mm. uh, tradespeople, and on the English on the Scottish English side, because my grandmother, there's one quarter that's actually from Cornwall. So 
uh, from a long line of sea captains, actually. So, mm. um, yeah, so quite a mixed bag, yeah. um, so to speak. Um, but, you know, one thing that flowed through as family influence was both sides of the family had a, um, a, an attitude about winning um, and an attitude about doing the best you can, yep. um, you know. So if you were going to be shoveling manure, that was okay as a job, but you had to be the best shoveler of a manure in WA and possibly yeah. the world. Mm. Um, that was the attitude. Mm. And um, that sort of come through, I suppose, in a lot of the way I approach stuff as well. Yeah. And how do you compare the suburban parts of your growing up to the Donnybrook parts of oh, your growing up? Yeah, Did you have look, a preference for one or the other? We were semi-rural. So we were Hamilton Hill back in the 70s, Yearwood. Yeah. So it was a lot of market gardens. Yeah. And we lived at Coogee Beach before mm. it became what it was. It was a, like, a nice little mm. almost coastal. A little community. enclave. Was yeah. It? Out of the city. Yeah. yeah, out of the city. So there was lots of fun and misadventure. And um, old Mr. Mitchell down the road, he was a, a rapscallion of great proportion. Um he, he was, I mean, at ages five and six, he was a returned, I think, World War One or World War Two veteran. I think it was World War One. But um, the Australian larrikin, I mean, at one stage, him and I and another kid, we got a, a trailer because we were using hill trolleys. And, mm. and he goes, oh, look, come on, we'll do, we'll do something bigger. So we got one of those mini moke trailers and put the ropes on the thing and it was all going well halfway down the hill until we got too much acceleration and <laughs> we tried to turn it flipped us over and I got flung across across the road onto the lawn and hit their laugh I started laughing I wasn't crying he injured himself a bit and the other my other partner in crime at the time were both on the lawn laughing but you know you look at it these days we both could have died quite yeah. easily but yeah that was the thing and I, and you know at a very young age <laughs> as a uh, my wife calls it the boom gene was very active. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I like to pull things apart, see how they worked, yeah. that sort of stuff. And yeah, yeah, always a taste for a bit of risk taking and a bit of adventure. Yeah, um, you moved to the school to the classroom in a school setting. Yep. Initially, mm. um, how did how did you go at teaching? Was it a role you felt comfortable in? Yeah, I did. I, I liked the teaching, and you know, I taught at Mercy College here in Perth, Newman College, and then ultimately at Perth College. So. Um, Two stints in the Catholic system and one in the, in the sort of the, mm. the top schools. Um, I enjoyed all of the experiences. They all had different um, sort of uh, things uh, about them. Um, Mercy College kids, you know, back then it was a lo very low socioeconomic area. There were some really, you know, sad stories in amongst it. But a lot of them, you know, you, you, I, I then compare it with sort of the some of the privileged young girls I used to teach at Perth College. Mm. And, you know, what would upset them was definitely that phrase, first world problems, compared to, you know, some of the stuff that used to go down with the kids at Mercy and to some degree at Newman as well because there was a mm. bit of a mix there. But, yeah, I enjoyed the teaching. I, I enjoyed the teaching, um, absolutely, and I still do today in mm. terms of teaching and engaging with people and educating them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds just from, you know, revisiting some of your childhood exploits there, there's a little bit of, little bit of rascal... Oh yeah, there's absolutely you, yeah, absolutely. Can I ask when you started become to be become something of an expert on the computer? Mm. Did you ever have a little fun hack no, yourself? Have you ever been a you know? I know you don't like the word, but a, yeah. a hacker yourself. Did you ever get up oh, to any mischief? Not sinister stuff, but yeah. any any kind of fun mischief? Yeah, no, I, there was definitely that, but also I realised at a very young age, at a very young intersection that. Um, 
it was far harder to be a defender. Yeah. Um, and that comes from some football as well and that sort of stuff. That's far he- harder to be a defender and play that. And that's more of an intellectual engagement and challenge for me than, um, you know, some of the attacks are too easy. I mean, mm. I'm not demeaning you or um, the gentleman sitting next to me either. Um, in that within 15 minutes on the internet, I could have you attacking infrastructure with ease. It's all point, click and shoot. Um, yeah. But defending against that, um, is very complex. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I, yeah, look, we also have to understand how things break mm. to be able to then recommend how things fix. Mm. So yeah, we, we don't, you know, and part of our thing is we do what's called penetration testing and vulnerability assessment of critical infrastructures and other businesses and all this. And we do that all the time. Um, it's under, you know, signed off authorities and that sort of stuff. We don't do anything illegal. We work very closely with police and agencies in terms of, you know, look, we found this, um, you need to possibly fix this or get someone to fix it and that sort of stuff. So mm. we, we do that all the time. Um, but it's about responsible disclosure. Um, and um, it's, you know, in some of it, yeah, you have to be what I call on the edge, surfing mm. the edge. But, yep. you know, as long as you've got a, a strong ethical and moral base, then you don't tend to have a... Yeah, tend to have an issue, and you know, I've had people that have what I would call ethically challenged. They're no mm. longer in the team. Mm. So yeah, I mean, some of those ethical challenges come up from time to time. I don't know why this one particularly came to mind, but um, um, you know, there was an argument a few years back about uh, whether um, the Apple should allow authorities in the US to basically be able to get in the phones through the back door yep. um, to extract data from someone who'd been accused of a of a mass shooting. Yeah. Um, and the San Bernardino case. Yes, course, yeah. and I remember um, um, Mr. Um, McAfee yep. saying, "Give me the, give me the phone, give me however long it was, a week, a month, or whatever. Uh, my hackers will get in there. Yep. No worries." Um, and he said, "My people are th- are those on the edge. You know, the the U.S. government they're going to employ people that have the short back and sides haircut that would turn up to an interview wearing a suit. Mm. You know, they tick all the boxes, good background, yada yada yada." I hire the guys who are on the edge, you know, of that moral precipice as well. You know, they'll come in with bleached hair and nose rings and, you know, all sorts of weird pe- – they're, they're the people on the – you know, from first appearance might be on the fringes. Mm. They're the people who are actually at the cutting edge. They could do it, not the clean-cut, you know, cookie-cutter types that the government might hire. Do you have to sort of face those same sorts of questions as well when you're – trying to find the best people to do that job of, of securing us? Well, I'd, I'd open, Tim, with some of the best criminals wear some of the best suits. Um, so <laughs> That's that's very true. <laughs> so, but um, no, I don't. I think that's mainly because my mother was a hairdresser and she used to, <laughs> and if you're listening, Mum, yes, you used to torch me with different haircuts. Um, and so I... Doesn't never, have to worry about yeah. that now. <laughs> but also too, from my parents and my grandparents on both sides, I was always instilled with meet a person as you read them, not as you see them. Yeah. Um, and get beyond the, the cover. Yeah. And uh, no, I, I don't. And I think fundamentally that's starting to change in the industry. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, on the edge, not so much on the edge people, but even, you know, the ethics and so on, that that can all be taught yeah. largely. Um, yeah. Some of It's never innate for some people and it's a learned behaviour yeah. from your parents and your upbringing and that sort of mm. stuff. And Look, most people, Tim, know wrong when they see it. Yeah. You know, and so uh, I have a very different attitude. I'd rather get those people in, train them up, 
give them some sort of compass to, yeah. to start working with. And the other one is, you know, it might be three and a hundred. I'm relying on the other 97 to yeah. keep looking and if things happen yeah. to actually speak up. Mm. Yeah. So for instance, those, those 500 people we spoke about, the latest injection of federal yeah. government funds, those 500 people that they're talking about hiring, who are they and what, what are they actually well, going to do? What's their daily job? Yeah, well, some of them will be our graduates um, out of our program and other universities' programs. And um, so they'll do everything from what we call threat hunting to um, – a lot of stuff in cybersecurity is looking for irregularities and patterns and paraphrasing Oscar Wilde once is unfortunate, twice as a pattern um, in terms of an attack. So that's where um, it's people with attention to detail. Um, they'll, they'll do go and try and find out, for instance, mm. that this attack that has geographically come from one of the nation states such as Russia, China, or in the case of last week on one of my senses, Panama, um, was it Panama? Some, yeah. So was it someone in Panama or was it someone that was remotely controlling? So one of the things in cyberspace that is very, very difficult is attribution, is actually putting that person in front of the keyboard with their you know, fingers typing the commands. Mm. We need to take another break. I, I want to ask you about your work in uh, digital forensics. Yep. Uh, as well. Another fascinating field. We'll get into that right after we take another break. Professor Craig Valley is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories, back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. We are hearing the story of uh, Professor Craig Valley, who is the director uh, of the Edith Cowan University Security Research Institute uh, and also a professor in digital forensics within the School of Science. I want to ask you about digital forensics now, Craig. Uh, I'm guessing that, uh, and cor- please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you will, um, a- applying some of that cyber science in a, in a criminal sense, in a crime-fighting sense, crime prevention yep. sense, is that about right? Yeah, what about, is it? Can you give us an example? About right. So, look, um, it's the application of actually computer science plus some other, you know, communications yeah. and all that sort of, st- all the sort of stuff that you have that make these systems to um, present facts for as evidence in court. Okay. So, once you do, you, you do an analysis of a device, up until then, it's just you're extracting artifacts. It then has to be presented to the court and be admissible in court and then be able to be used in the prosecution of an individual. Mm. Um, and it can be used to prove guilt and it can also be used to prove innocence, like mm. traditional forensics. But unlike traditional forensics or wet, ref, wet forensics, as we tend to like to call it, um, computers ultimately only have two states, either off or on. So um, ours is evidence of fact. You know, th- this was observed, this computer stored this value at this this point in time. It corresponded to this algorithm that was executed and this would have been the result sort of um, uh, approach mm. as opposed to we think they died. It's my opinion that it died between 11 and 12 and then you can come in and say, no, no, we believe, I believe as an expert that it was between 12 and 1. So a lot of that disappears in digital forensics because you're able to record what you've done and someone's able to reliably reproduce your result um, and rarely 
if at all, is a possibility unless they've done their investigation really badly. And I'm not precluding the fact that some people do. Um, that you can then replicate it yourself and cannot disprove mm. the theory, so to speak, or the, mm. the, the, the actual how you've come to your conclusions about the evidence. And that can be evidence from um, GPS, for instance, to, yep. to provide accurate location and time. But it also uh, is better that it's the GPS on the phone and the GPS in the car that puts the person in the prox- you know, proximate position and then they've accessed a website um, at a particular time, et cetera, and that website's recorded um, certain things or um, they've taken video of, like, for instance, the scene outside the window here, which mm. is unique, um, mm. so that you can then use that and use other pieces of evidence in the, in the machine um, or in the device or that's been transmitted across mm. the network to prove yep. um, guilt as well as innocence. So this is the other thing. I mean, one of the cases that I assisted with from an innocence point of view was someone that was about to be terminated from their, from their work because um, someone had done a really um, average investigation and it actually got it factually incorrect and it was still um, not pr- proved even beyond a reasonable doubt um, or even any doubt that this person had done what they, you know, they were accused of. So um, th- there's that, but then there's other times when it's it's very, um, you know, quite damaging to someone's case. You know, I was there. Well, can you explain to us? You know, well, the, the, I'm sure the interview goes. Can you explain to us how you phone your car and um, one other digital artifact that you were talking on has you located at this location? You know, mm. cell towers don't tend to lie as well because there's other stuff under warrant that they can get. But, you know, your GPS location, even the location of the imagery um, and those those types of things um, can be used um, to prove innocence or guilt. And the thing about, you know, storage on computers, we did some studies on hard drives where we went to auctions and bought them. Now, a lot of people don't realise unless they erase the contents of their hard drive that it stays on the hard drive until it needs to reuse that space. So that was done over sort of a period of six to seven years. Uh, I think in total it was an international collaboration. We most probably did over 5,000 storage devices and we found everything Mm. from from government. Um, My American colleague found the top secret launch codes for the THAAD missile launch. (laughs) Wow. Yes. So, um, and, you know, we found um, similar uh, documents as well, um, you know, classified documents or highly sensitive documents from businesses and governments and individuals, um, the usual selfies without clothes on, et cetera, um, on hard drives. Um, ones where the, one of the funniest ones was we got 20 Blackberries once and bought them. And Blackberries, if you put the password, are pretty much uh, impenetrable. You can't get into them because yeah. of countermeasures. But of the 20, seven of them had no password. Is that right? Yeah, and one of them was a... Was a uh, a barrister or a lawyer in Vaucluse that worked for the dark side, shall we say. And um, there was everything about his life there. His frequent flyer number, his credit card numbers. And um, there was a quite an interesting uh, entry in his diary. There was an A&E merger for two hours on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And then having read the email logs, we found out that uh, that A&E merger was when he visited his mistress. Um, so, oh, nice. and there was some email trail there saying, um, 
abusing him. And then my wife's actually from Sydney. And I said, oh, this jeweler's in George Street. She said, Robin said, nothing under 10,000 bucks. And she was right. <laughs> and of course, that was to pay off the mistress to keep it quiet because she went feral because he left early and all this sort of stuff. But wow. it, was all, it was all there. And there was not a password. Not a password. And you just sit there and face palm and just go, really? Wow. People that, you know, and he, he of all people should have known um, that these are the sorts of things that they come undone on. Mm. And, you know, the basic things would have prevented that, which was a password <laughs> for, his, for his BlackBerry for us getting that information. I mean, we never disclosed who he was because that's not what we do, you know, um, but we disclose the case details. Mm. Um, you know, we go to Vaucluse in Sydney, but it's a bit like Netherlands and mm. other places here. There's plenty of lawyers in the street. So mm. also, you know, look, mm. looking at each other, doing the Martin Scorsese, you talking to me, you talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you get called in to assist with, say, WA Police yep. with an investigation, yeah. um, are you privy to all the, all of the information that, that they have? I mean, because no, you're not no, law not, enforcement not, agency yeah, yourselves, no. how do you interact with them? So often, you know, we they'll say they want to get into X, Y, Z. Can you help us? Um, and mm. We don't know. And we, we may produce a method or an access method for getting to X, Y, Z. Um, we don't normally get involved with case data, or if we do, we have what's called a forensic copy. Mm. Um, we've got facilities for secure storage and that sort of stuff on campus, which makes us fairly unique in Australia, mm. um, actually, as a university, or less so now as other unis are trying to get on um, to the cybersecurity bandwagon. But we've had, um, I'm just doing redoing my national clearance now, um, uh, and I've had it for 10 years. So that gives you an idea of how long we've been doing this sort of stuff. So, mm. Um, and yeah, look, at the end of the day, we're more interested in the, the, um, what, when and why, and potentially we, we, we may have to be asked the who, but normally that's all we're interested in. We don't care who, mm. um, we're interested in the science and how it was done and, and how do we do extract from a new device mm. or, you know, in the internet of things, it could be extracting evidence from a game console or it could be a CCTV camera. Um, you, know, you think of all the things that people have in their houses and Alexa talking or something mm. like that or, you know, one of those devices. And the proliferation of devices that we have that have fragments of our digital self on just continues to increase almost exponentially. Mm. And, and do you have those devices yeah. yourself? Do you, yeah. you have them all? Yeah, look, I have. And you're comfortable? I don't have the... Because if you're okay with it, I feel like I might yeah, be look, okay with it. Um, I. I'm fairly pragmatic. So, yeah, we have CCTV cameras at home, but yeah. they're not pointing into the house. They're pointing outside. So they can look at the lovely garden with all its weeds and all that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the... the um, You've got an Alexa or something no, similar? No, no, I don't have no? it. Um, your phone's are bad enough for listening yeah. to you. I hope you don't uh, have TikTok. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> I do have Facebook because, I mean, it's, yeah. it's there. But, again, be careful about what you put on the platforms. It's like everything. It's reasonable use. You know, and it's analogous to what we do in the real world. I mean, you don't go, you, know, you don't go on a, after the Eagles have just thrashed the Dockers with your Eagles jumper on into Fremantle into certain pubs and expect to get out alive. So, you know, again, the same thing on the internet. Use it judiciously, be careful about where you are yeah. and think about what it is. And what is it, you know, all of these apps, whether it's TikTok, whether it's Facebook or whatever, there's a give and a get, as the Americans say. So you're getting a free service. So what are, the, what are you giving them? Mm. And a lot of people don't understand. And the other thing I think about the internet really is once it's been seen, it's really unseen. You can't get rid of it that mm. easily. Um, so a lot of the people that are 
you know, using social media, taking photos of them partying, some of them out of control, some of them drunk, some of them in worse states of repair. Um, <clears throat> your former, your future employers are going to see that. Mm. So, um, you know, that's, uh, and I think that's part of it. And they, I've never had a class of undergraduates, you know, they'll say, oh, I don't care, buy about the fourth question where they're not all squirming in the chair and won't give it up, mm. you know, in terms of questioning. Um, so that's, and I think that's one of the great pities of the social media apps. People don't think about what is the alternate use of this data. Um, and the other one is too, um, as we mentioned before when we were talking, is they're not thinking uh, where is this app running from? What are the laws in that country? You know, you don't have the protection of the Australian legal framework for a lot of this stuff because the data is stored somewhere else on the planet mm. or run by a company from another planet. And that country may have a very um, deleterious uh, view of human rights. We need to head to another break, uh, Craig, but we will be back with more right after this. Uh, Craig Valley is our guest. This is Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My special guest in this episode is Professor Craig Valley. Uh, Craig, I'm guessing, I mentioned before you, you, you wear a number of hats, uh, and I'll mention a couple of them here. Um, you are a member of the High Tech Crime Investigators Association, the Australian chapter, uh, the Interpol Cybercrime Experts Group, uh, Interpol's Digital Forensic Expert Group, uh, and the list goes on. Um, you must be a holder of some pretty valuable, sensitive information. Does that ever trouble you at all? Um. Some nights, but yeah, um, but not not always. Again, maybe I'm being in, yeah. influenced here by watching you know too many movies and TV yeah, shows and yeah. stuff here. But look, yeah, um, uh, no, look, I think one of the things is um, where's a group keep a fairly low profile. Yeah, um, apart from you know the, what you just read out, but, <laughs> but um, which I, uh, it, I I'm obviously not a forensic a digital yeah. forensic expert, Craig, yeah. and. I'm, just to warn you, that information is out there. Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> and that, look, that's fine. And look, um, yeah, look, some of the stuff we do would, you know, there's some intersection with some of the less desirable um, yeah. forms of human. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we're very careful about what we do. We, you know, we do it in, co you know, we will work with, we work with police. I mean, mm. we've never made any bones about that and assist police and law enforcement agencies across the world. Um, unless there are a despotic regime and then we draw the line. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of, yeah, we've got a lot of valuable information, et cetera, but just because you've got it doesn't mean you should be using it, um, et cetera, for advantage and that sort of stuff, unlike, some, mm. you know, some of the criminals. I mean, we'd, we'd be no better than them. Mm. So, and that's not what my group at the Security Research Institute and Edith Cowan are about. Yep. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that uh, you were instrumental in establishing is this uh, commercial spin-off uh, out of ECU, Sapien yep. uh, Cyber. Yeah, Sapien uh, Cyber. What, yep. What's that about and how, how, does, um, how does your expertise apply differently in a commercial setting compared to uh, in a university and, and research sort of setting? Yeah, so myself and um, the team are core inventors of the technology. Um, 
It's around protecting critical infrastructure, mm -hmm. often referred to as either SCADA, S-C-A-D-A, -A, or OT, operational technologies. Um, it's, it's born out of the fact that the state of Western Australia, um, which I love reminding my Eastern state counterparts about, about 50 plus percent of export GD pro product for Australia comes out of this state. Mm. Most of that comes out of this state as the result of utilisation of operational technologies. And part of the problem is with the operational technologies is that they are, um, in some of them are 30 and 40 years old because they designed the plant back then. So you've got things like windows for work groups or even older running. So they have a lot of vulnerability that's known and they're a very easy attack surface. So the startup, um, we started, we've done a lot of research in the space uh, mm. and we continue to do research, but um, we developed up a, or I particularly developed up a system that we could use um, to help protect and it's since been commercialised and um, yeah, it's going well. Yeah. yeah. And also the belief, I think, again, back from family that, you know, we're as good as anyone else on the planet. Um, it doesn't always have to come from Israel or America yeah. um, to be a good cybersecurity product. You know, we can, we can do it. Yeah. And the facilities that you've got there yep. at ECU and Joondalup, uh, well, on a world scale, they're, they're right up there, aren't they? They're right up there. Um, and, you know, we've got a cyber operations centre that students can get educated in. In my security research institute, we have specialist facilities for extraction, you know, the digital forensics, maintaining chain of custody and all those types of things. We um, have con the ability to produce um, things ourselves to build it to actually go and do an analysis of something. Um, so, yeah, we have, so we have the I would say, the best cybersecurity facilities in Australia and mm. some of the best in the world yeah. um, for students to come and interact with and um, learn from. And, you know, we're producing, you know, over a 20-plus year history now, we're producing some of the world's best cybersecurity leaders. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, looking into your crystal ball here, Craig, just seeing how quickly technology is progressing and how we're racing towards this automated world where artificial intelligence is replacing many of the things we did manually in the past. Um, does it scare you at all how quickly it's advancing and, uh, you know, some of the problems that will inevitably come with it? Oh, look, there'll always be problems. I mean, um, if someone invents a technology, someone will always try and find a, a, an edge for criminal purposes. Mm. Um, I think AI in of itself uh, is not all it's cracked up to be. Um, mm. There will still be uh, humans in some of the loops. I think artificial intelligence is very good at getting rid of mundane, repetitive tasks, um, but still pure evil genius, as I call it, sometimes uh, <laughs> that, that comes from humans. It doesn't mm. come from a, you know, until the, the artificial intelligence becomes sentient, um, I doubt, I doubt it's going to top some of the humans. And, mm. and and the thing is, most of the artificial intelligence in operation today is constructed from a human construct. Someone will think it up, this is how it works, I want to do this, 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 and this, and, and run it. So again, it's still um, an embodiment of someone's way of looking at the world yep. and just using automation and some other tools and compute power to, mm. to achieve the goal. Having said that, we might have to clone you 
yep. a thousand times over to... Uh... Oh, I don't know. That'd be a safe <laughs> thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah, not. Yeah. Uh, either way, it's been fascinating uh, picking your brain for the last hour or so. So thank you so much for coming in and sharing some of your story. Yep. Thanks very much, Tim. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal or get a low maintenance Trex deck. The only colour fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.